You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. Uh, If you have your Bibles, like I said, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We have been in an absolute hot mess looking at 2,000 years ago how badly the churches really screwed up. And what's encouraging to us is that we screw up as well. And if they screwed up and they just had Christ, they just literally, the, the same generation is, is knew Christ alive. John is still alive when Jesus speaks to him uh, from heaven about the condition of the seven churches along Asia Minor. And he's talking to them and, and John's still around. John's an old man, but John's still around. If they can screw up while they even were in the same life cycle as Christ on earth, then it should encourage us that there's still hope for us, even though we can really not follow the Lord like we're supposed to. And so uh, last week, we talked about a dead church. Do you guys remember the light year analogy if you were in church last week? That everyone thought they were alive. They were the shining star. But in reality, Jesus knew their heart. He says, I know that everyone else thinks you're alive, but I know because I'm Jesus that you're dead. And so now this week, we're going to look at the faithful church. We're going to look at the church that Jesus just adores. And then next week, it's going to end on a very bad note. And since I'm not going to be here next week, I just want to give a little bit of analogy and kind of set Micah up to hit a home run next week. Next week, we're looking at the lukewarm church. And if you know anything about the lukewarm church, he makes this famous statement to the church that we've said many times. He says, you're either going to be hot Or you're going to be cold, but if you're lukewarm, what does he say he's going to do? I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you. I was uh, had the absolute privilege and honor this week of being uh, a servant to my wife in the greatest of all servanthood that I could possibly possess. I was uh, driving a van for Aberdeen Christian School to Webster for a field trip. And some of you already know how this story goes. I started getting texts about, hey, I'm sorry that this happened to you. And I said, well, I, I like to suffer for Jesus. And so uh, I was with like 20-something, I think, fourth graders, hygiene, eh, you know. And uh, we were hanging out. I had all the guys on in one bus. And then another parent at New Life had the girls. And Ann was sitting with me as my co-captain and leader of this trip. And on the way back, this one fourth grader starts looking a little weird. Not that they already don't look weird, but, but he started looking like off, and he goes to New Life too. And in fact, all the people around him went to New Life, and so um, go figure. But all of a sudden, he just vomits, and it smelled amazing. <laughs> he just vomits, and then it created this chain reaction where another New Life kid, yeah, another New Life kid, that one, someone that's here at church this morning, their grandkid, I was just talking to him about it, throws up in his bag, and then rumor is a third threw up, that's still questionable. But I rolled down the windows, and it, it was just, the, we were like 30 miles from, we were in Bristol. And I said, well, we're going to stop, I have nothing to clean this thing with. So I thought, the Lord obviously allowed me to speed, and it was not a sin. And I tried to get home as quick as possible, and I remember Eric Klein is just like the most humble guy ever. He comes out with the Dawn dish soap, and I do the most humble thing ever and say, I've paid my dues, I'm out. And so I leave <laughs> and come back to the church. But I remember one of the kids, after the 
second kid vomited. And I don't know who's, I'm not going to try to start a chain reaction here. But, but the kid said, he goes, oh, he ate turkey for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Jesus tells this church, Micah, you're welcome, right? Uh, he tells this church, man, if you're not hot or you're not cold, I'm going to spit you out. It's going to look like some Thanksgiving turkey when I get done with you. And so he has these harsh words for the churches. But here's the good news, Memorial Day weekend. There is this other church, this church in Philadelphia, who is so faithful to Christ. They're dealing with all sorts of issues, but they don't make any excuses. In fact, he has no rebuke, no rebuke needed for this church. Everything he says in the midst of these other churches. And remember, these seven letters, these seven churches, all seven letters are getting read to each church. And so there's this great anticipation as now it comes to your church and everyone's hearing about your church and now you're hearing about it for the first time and you hear all the other bad stuff and you're wondering, what is Jesus gonna say about us? He says nothing negative to the church in Philadelphia. He only has positive statements. In the basic context of the storyline today, is this beautiful reality that they are faithful no matter what. They're faithful. Of all the legacies that you can leave, and we're going to talk about leaving a legacy this morning as I close this thing out, of all the legacies that you could ever leave as a follower of Christ, don't you want it said on your tombstone that you're faithful? That you're a faithful husband, that you're a faithful father, that you're a faithful friend, that you're a faithful employee, but most importantly, that you're a faithful follower of Christ. This church is faithful to the Lord. In fact, I will tell you this, in marriage counseling, before people get married, I'm going to do a, a wedding uh, in the hills of, of a couple that goes to new life, and we always, I always ask this question because I've found that, you know, like after a lot of time of not seeing it go well with some people, I try to find those pressure points to get ahead of the game when people get married. And one of the questions I always ask now is this. I say, what is the number one way this person could hurt you? Because we need to talk about it now to avoid that future trauma. What do you think the number one answer is? It's unfaithful. It's usually the wife making the statement that the number one way that this man could hurt me is if he's unfaithful. Now, the, the beauty of that statement is I've been able to walk with people who've gone through that issue and, and watch actually their marriage strengthen over a period of time because they go through a trauma and then they draw close together, and more importantly, they draw close to the Lord. But just on average, when you ask that question to unmarried people, they tell you pretty much nine times out of ten, you'll always have kind of that outlier that'll say something just that you think, how could that even be that big of a deal? Um, you're weird. But uh, most people say if they're unfaithful to me. And so Jesus being the groom, us being the bride, he is telling them how much he appreciates their faithfulness. This church in Philadelphia is a beautiful church. It's it's located in kind of a unique area of the world. It's about 30 miles from Sardis. It it was founded in about 190 BC by the king of Pergamos. And have you guys uh, ever heard the the saying, you know, Philadelphia is the city, city, city of brotherly love? Right? Do you guys know that that comes from this city? That in about 190 BC, the king was oddly close to his brother. And I, I don't even know all the details of that, but he loved his brother dearly. 
And so he actually coins this phrase that it's the city of brotherly love, and now our Philadelphia in America is named after the same concept. They were land rich. They, they were sitting on volcanic ash, which I guess is really good for agriculture, and they were a, a city that was on a hill overlooking a valley. They dealt with lots of loss. Trauma was not far from their storyline because they were on a vault where there would be many earthquakes. It was a trade route. It was a, a, a male center, center, center city, and it's not male like M-A-L-E. It's M-A-I-L. It was where all of the mail going along the Asia Minor, it was the post for that location. And so it really was a hub of information long, long before the Internet. And all we really know about this church from, is from this letter, and it's that Jesus loves them. He loves them. And he says this in verse 7 of chapter 3 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, of the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. He right off the gate identifies himself as the Son of God and as God himself in the Trinity, being that he says that he's holy because Holiness is only a spot that's reserved for God himself. To be holy is really to be separate from sin. And so he's stating, this is who I am. These are the words of the perfect one and the holy one. And he makes this other statement. He, he talks about uh, the one who has the key of David. And so I thought that was interesting. What is that talking about? You have to go back to the Old Testament if you like fun facts and details. And you'll find that in Isaiah chapter 22, there's this storyline of Hezekiah who had a treasury, and the treasury was managed by a guy by the name of Elikim. And it was this royal treasury, and it was the storehouse. It was where they would add and accumulate all of their wealth, and it was through the line of David. And so this guy, Elikim, he had the key to this treasury. It was the key of David. And so what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I have the key of David. I have the capacity to bless you. I have the capacity to pour out, not just monetarily, right, but to pour out these blessings on your life. I love you, I see you, I know what you're about, and I am absolutely proud of you as a church. He says in verse eight this, he says, I know your works. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. He starts throwing at them these character attributes as to why they're so faithful and why he loves them so dearly. He says, I know your works. I know that people have this opinion of you. Remember last week? People have this opinion of you, but it's all a bunch of garbage. I told you that a light year is, uh, you know, like 186,000 miles away, and that you can, as a star, if you're far enough away from planet Earth, and you can actually look like you're shining because of the distance between earth and this star, but you can already be burned out, but people are still seeing that light. I told you guys that last week. And he's saying, I know who you really are. It looks like you're shining, but you're dead. He says about this church, it looks like you're shining. I know your works. You are who you say you are. There's no hypocrisy amongst you. You're not perfect, but you line up. I know your works. I know your deeds. He's not sitting back passively and not paying attention to his people. He's watching what's taking place. And he makes this other statement. He says, you have little power. 
So what does that mean? Because the church, right, that's the foundation, the rock that Jesus builds, the, the way the gospel goes forward. That's significant as well. It's actually not talking about the power source. It's talking about the size. It's a small church in a big area. But it's that whole idea of uh, small th- or big things come in small packages. Said every short guy with, you know, height envy, right? <laughs> big things come in small packages. It's this idea that they're a powder keg. They're a little stick of dynamite, even though they're not big in in stature, they're not big in size, they're not big in influence, they're big in power. And he says, I see you. I know that you don't have a lot of resources. I know that you're impoverished. I know that you're uh, you're just marginalized in the culture around you. And he's going to just say in a second, I know that you're persecuted. I know that this church, this synagogue that is coming after you, is really breaking down morale, but I see you. I see people are getting baptized. I see people are getting saved. I say life change happening from the inside out. And he says this, he says, I know that you're obedient. And, and here's how he defines obedient, the same way he defines obedient to this day. He says, you have kept my word, write that down. If you wanna know how you can be obedient to God, it's not a mystery. He gives us this word that it's on these screens, it's in your hands right now possibly, it's in the Bible that's sitting under your seat if you wanna pull it out. He says, you have heard my word, you have given, you've been given this revelation from me and you have obeyed me at every level, you are obedient. John 14, 23 says this. <clears throat> it says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And the Father will love him and will come to him and will make abode with him. He says this. He says, you've not denied my name. You're loyal. You're a faithful bride. When people have come after you, you've always taken my name and you have, even at costing you everything, you have made my name great. There's one other church like this. It's this church that we studied several weeks ago, this church of Pergamum. And if you guys were following this series or if you've been listening online, I told you guys of this pastor named Polycarp. Do you guys remember that guy? Uh, he was a pastor uh, of this church. And, and there's this story of him that I just want to recap real quick because I think it's a beautiful story of loyalty. Uh, he's awakened in the middle of the night. He's having a dream, history tells us, of a pillow that he's laying on, being on fire. And Polycarp, this pastor of this church in Pergamon, wakes up. And he tells his disciples, he says, I must be burned alive. And not long after he has this dream, he's actually taken into custody and he has this choice. Do you guys remember the story yet? He's 86 years old. He's been following Jesus his entire life, or at least since Jesus revealed himself to him. He's been pastoring this faithful, persecuted church. And he wakes up from this dream and he's been given this choice And this is like historically documented. This isn't even from scripture. This is from just secular historians who've documented this story. And he's 86 years old and he's given this church choice to either bow to Caesar or to be burned alive at the stake. And he makes this statement. The two churches that Jesus compliments, he makes this statement. He's the other pastor. He says, 86 years I've served Jesus and he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then they went to bind him up on a post because I, I, I hear that being burned is the most painful way to go. 
And so they would bind you up on a post so that you couldn't run once the process started. And he says this, he says, don't bind me, leave me as I am. For the one who gives me power to endure the fire will grant me to remain in the flames unmoved. Because my loyalty is to Christ and Christ alone. And now he's sitting with Jesus in heaven for eternity. This church is loyal, just like this church in Pergamum. Verse nine says this, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. They're gonna bow down at your feet in submission to me ultimately, but they're gonna recognize the error of their ways. And so here's the idea behind that. I was thinking about how that applies to new life, uh, how that fits culturally to everything going on around us. And I've told you week after week, I'm gonna keep making these same types of statements so they sink in. Right now, we live in a world where if you're 25 years of age or younger, pay attention to this and look at me, if especially if you're under the age of 25. This is the reality of the, the truth that our kids are walking in. One out of 25 kids has a biblical worldview. One out of 25. Where are your teenagers at? Where are your college students at that are your kids? How are they obeying the word of God? Are they following Christ with their heart? This is the spiritual pandemic that we're a part of. And people are fleeing the local church and they are in, in every direction. Like if, if you, because of this, I just saw some Wings guys uh, walk in and there's this guy that's from San Francisco that's the captain of the Wings team. And I know I keep bringing them up, but uh, you know, I just saw him walk into church late and I felt like I needed to rebuke him for that. But, but they're coming into church and, and this one guy, Clayton, he tells me one of the first times I ever talked to him at Mazatlan's, he said, I, I don't really know anyone where I'm from that has the worldview that I have as a Christian. And obviously San Francisco, that's like its own planet, right? But it, it, it's becoming a reality everywhere and technology is making that even more of a reality. The world is getting smaller. But here, here's why I bring that up. I think that's very significant for us. How many of you guys feel like in a world of, you know, 25 and under, and then at 40 and younger, which I'm 41 now, so I get an exemption, right, that they have, they have a very narrow scope of people that hold a biblical worldview where you become kind of a piranha, a piranha you, you, I don't even know if that's a word, but you become this person that is a, a social outcast for holding to the ideals of the gospel, and how, how many of you even felt like in this last election cycle, are you awake, that you had to defend every last position, especially on social media? Because the world around you is absolutely a bunch of idiots. None of you. That's amazing. All right? I felt a little bit of that pressure as a pastor, and I'm obviously leading a congregation that's not honest. But, you know, you felt that pressure to behave in that way where it's like, man, I've got to fight all my own battles and this is the end of the end of the end and so I'm going to go stockpile ammunition and move to Montana and quit paying taxes because everything's getting so crazy, right? You start to feel that pressure because things are indefinitely, they're getting crazy. But they were crazy 2,000 years ago. Are you awake? And Jesus was ruling and Jesus was reigning and he says this to his church, look at it again. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, there were these Jewish people in a synagogue close to Philadelphia who are coming against Christians, who say that they are Jews. He's saying they're not real Jews. They don't, they don't follow the Torah. Look at the way that they're acting. 
and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and I and they will learn that I have loved you. This is what Christ is saying to his church. I fight your battles. That doesn't mean that we don't stand on the ideals that he's given us. That doesn't mean we don't proclaim the truth that he gives us from the rooftops. But it does mean this. We don't have to live in angst and we don't have to live in fear and we don't have to fight every unnecessary battle because Christ is doing it for his church. Amen? Christ is doing it for his church. He's letting us know that he's still in the game and that he's at the center of everything. And in verse 10, he says this. And we're gonna start applying this stuff. He says this. He says, because you've kept my word about patience, endurance, I'm gonna keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. The NIV says it like this. You guys endured patiently. You know what spiritual maturity does? Spiritual maturity doesn't just endure hardship. This is what's hard about it. If you had, I've said this before, if you had an end date to the trauma, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. In fact, most people that have been through trauma, what really bothers them is not a difficult situation, it's the unpredictability of the next one. What God is calling us to as mature believers is not just to endure, but to endure patiently and to follow him and to trust him no matter what. He says, you guys have endured, but you guys have endured patiently. I want to apply this text to us. And I just want you to write a few things down. I'm going to refocus on some things that I kind of breezed over. The first one, the first idea is this. This is for New Life 2021 Memorial Day weekend. This is in my prayer life, and I want to share it with you. There is one door. He says, behold, I have the door. He said, I set before you an open door in verse 8, which no one is able to shut. There is one door with two options. Jesus is exclusive. There has always been one door with two options, and that door is either open or shut, and the person that controls that narrative is not yourself, it's not me, it's not anybody else around us, it's Christ and Christ alone. This can actually take on a few different meanings. One of them is salvation. I think it's a metaphor of our salvation that, that Christ, and he says to this next church, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone would let me in, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. He's talking about salvation. And so I think that's one of those meanings to it, that Christ is the only way in which man can be saved or in which woman can be saved, and he has the door. He opens it. He shuts it. It's not on anything that we can do on our own. It's only by grace that we've been saved through faith. And so there's this idea behind this text that Jesus is saying the door is open right now, the invitation has been sent out, but there's gonna be this period of time where the door's no longer open. You guys remember the song from the 90s, People Get Ready, Jesus Is Coming? Nobody? Coming to take you home? That, that's like a power anthem. Go back and YouTube that thing, it's good stuff. Verse seven, he says, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. These doors don't stay open forever. Because I think another context for this verse, and I think actually the most appropriate one for the way that he's talking with this key of David and this blessing, is that we have this opportunity in this season, we don't know how long it'll last, it seems like the door is shutting right before our eyes, but we don't know. 
we have this opportunity to make Christ's name known, to serve him passionately like the church in Philadelphia, to serve him with our entire heart. And there's going to be this season where the door is no longer open, but he's looking for his church to endure. He's looking for his church to obey. He's looking for a church that is faithful. And I want to just challenge us, as your pastor, knowing that this door is going to shut, what are we doing about it? I was telling one of our elders this morning before we prayed, I said, I feel like we're at this fork in the road where things could go one of two ways, and it seems by all practical wisdom that we see which direction it's going because it's getting so glim. But at the same time, the door's still open, and maybe that door being open by us truly being the church, by proclaiming the gospel, maybe that will create this revival. And, and we don't know what it looks like everywhere, but I think we can say pretty safely that we have an impact on our community, don't we? We have a huge impact on our community. One of the matrix that I told you last week was this. If new life ceased to exist in Aberdeen, South Dakota, would anybody notice? Would there be this gaping flesh wound in the community? And I would have to say unequivocally, that would be our scenario in Aberdeen. If new life ceased to exist, the community would feel the impact even if they didn't even understand why they felt the impact. Because the gospel's going forward. Right now the door is open. What are we doing about it? Are we growing complacent or are we being emboldened with passion for Jesus? Here's the second thing that's for new life. This is the encourager, even though it seems glim. Number two, write this down. Faithful churches have always faced opposition. Always. Right out of the gate. It was worse then than it is now. This synagogue was the church down the road. Jesus comes after it. He accuses it of not even being a Jewish church, not even being a Jewish synagogue, because we don't know exactly what's going on, but the way they're treating the church of Philadelphia is not following according to the rules of Judaism. So he says, they're not even real Jews. They're not acting like the way the Torah says that they're supposed to act. And so here's what I've come to understand. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a dark reality, but maybe you felt this reality in your own life. That when it comes to opposition, uh, a lot of times it's in, it's in the world around us, right? A lot of times it's, it's social media or it's, it's this politics stuff that's going crazy right now. Or, you know, it's the news cycle or, or whatever that you're hearing. And it's kind of like garbage in, garbage out. And you're hearing all these things. You're hearing all this noise. And a lot of times that's the opposition, but when you start listening to people's story and they start talking about opposition and why they're not plugged into their local church anymore, a lot of times you'll hear this narrative that's not about opposition of people who say they don't follow Christ. Are you tracking with where I'm going? A lot of times when you start to hear their heart and the brokenness of their tone, a lot of times their accusations aren't from without, uh, outside of these sources that are persecuting them. It's from people inside of the church and they're saying, I want nothing more to do about that. Jesus is speaking to his church, and he's telling them, these things are going to happen, but I want you to follow me, and I want you to love me, and I want you to obey me, regardless of everything that's going on around you, or more personally, everything that's going on right beside you. About 10% of Aberdeen is a huge miss this week because it's Memorial Day. I would say about one out of 13 or 14 people right now in Aberdeen are sitting in these seats. 
And then take from that churches that are even preaching from the Bible. I don't even know what the narrative is, but I'm telling you, things are not good. People are running away from those things that 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we thought were common in Aberdeen, South Dakota. That although we knew a lot of people didn't know Jesus, we also knew that this was a very churched community. Things are changing, not kind of quickly, things are changing rapidly. And so here's what I know about opposition, whether it's coming from the outside or whether it's coming from the inside, opposition has a way of thinning things out. But the good news is this, opposition also has a way of making the body of Christ much stronger. One one thing that I've seen here in the last two years is that the people of God are really digging some roots. People that, that I didn't even know very well are now people that I walk with on a weekly basis. Opposition thins things out. In a culture where a lot of people that you thought were in the ring are no longer even in the fight. In, in a church circle where you thought like 15 years ago, you thought, man, I, I, just can't, uh, I just can't believe when this person goes to be with the Lord, it's like every day they can't wait for Jesus to come back. Those same people are saying, man, I hope his flight gets delayed. Have you guys noticed that? I don't look around because it doesn't apply to anybody in here, obviously, right? Or anybody online. But those other people, it's like people that I've walked with so closely that I thought would do anything for new life, that I thought would do anything to serve Christ. Man, it's like I'm watching their life and I'm going, I'm seeing these little, because I sneak around on Facebook, but I don't actually have a Facebook account. I'm more of a creeper than anything else. I see things that are going on and uh, confession time. I'm going, I, man, I, it's like they served Jesus so much 10 years ago when they're kids. And, then, and you're looking at them now and you're going, what happened? What happened? Opposition thins things out, but on the flip side, opposition draws us into the Savior. This is a season where we fight for the local church. We fight for our Savior. And he finishes the text like this. He says in verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. That's a, that's a promise. We don't know how soon, but soon. Hold fast what you have. And I want you to underline everyone together. Underline one word I'm going to say in just a second. So get your pens ready or, you know, stab your finger, right, underline it in blood, whatever you have to do. I'm coming soon. You can underline that, but that's not the mandate. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And here, get ready to underline verse 12. The one who conquers, the one that's faithful, the one that follows me no matter what, I will make him a pillar. Underline that word. Five of you, right? Underline that word. Online, I know you're all doing it. Underline that word. Downtown, underline that word. I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and out of my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Here's the last thing that I just want to close our time out with today on Memorial Day weekend. The faithful church that Jesus loves like this church. The faithful church that Jesus loves, and and I'm just going to put us in this category. I know we're not perfect. The faithful church like new life. The faithful church gets the crown. And there's this beautiful promise that I want us to walk away from this morning of the church that has this crown of life on it. 
that has this promise of an open door of salvation that we walk through that can't be taken away no matter what. The faithful church that gets the crown is held up by these pillars, and the pillars represent the people. Greg was telling me, I didn't get to go to all the graduation parties. I made it to some of them, and I didn't make it to others. And so if I didn't make it to yours, um, there's going to be a huge check for my wife that's coming for you for your college in the form of a McDonald's gift card or something like that. But Greg, Greg made it to most of them, maybe all of them, I don't know. But he told me this story of a family that's just, I think, is hilarious at our church. That they, it was raining last weekend, and the dad, they, they ended up having this tarp, and the dad didn't know what to do. And so for like a long period of time, he was the pillar while people were coming. He's probably going, ah, I need this money to help pay for my kid's school. I'm not going to cancel this party. So, so he, I don't know what his motive was, but he's holding this tarp up. And if you know this guy, you can actually see him doing it. He's a big man. He's actually in church right now, but I won't call him out. Uh, his name might be Clint Wagaman, but I'm not for sure. And, and he's, holding, he's holding this tarp up. And I don't know how long he did it, but, but Greg called me. He's like, man, uh, you should have seen this party. It was so awesome. Like, Clinton was such a beast. He just held this tarp up for a period of time so that his daughter could have this safe haven to have her graduation party at. Pillars are the foundation. This is the promise to us. There's this youth room that's about to be finished. In fact, this has been the problem with this entire building is that it has to be held up with pillars. And so as we design this space, you guys will notice some things like there's all these sudden these random box rectangular spaces in the sanctuary. It's because when we first started orchestrating how this building was going to look, we had to work around the pillars. Because without the pillars, what happens? Everything falls to the ground. And so there's this youth room right now, and we tried to cover up all the pillars with walls, but they're every 30 feet. And so there are a few pillars that could not be avoided. And uh, the only way we could work around it is we are going to put these Nerf pad things up so that kids are as little concussed as possible when they're playing dodgeball. But we have these pillars that we couldn't get rid of because in order to get rid of them, an architect and an engineer needs to come in and it costs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You have to go from the roof, create these cross beams. It's just a hot mess. It takes a lot of money. And so we thought, well, you know, a few head injuries, you know, we just kind of weighed out those costs. I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, we were like, we want to play dodgeball in here. We want to have battle zones in here. But there are these few poles that we're just going to have to work around because without the pillar, the foundation crumbles. Without the pillar, the foundation crumbles. And he says this. He says, you're going to be a pillar in the kingdom. You're going to be a pillar in the kingdom. Just wait. Just hold fast. I'm coming soon. And I want to leave us with that on this church that Jesus loves. That our promise, that your promise, that my promise, is that if we hold fast and we serve Jesus no matter what, even if we deal with the synagogue of Satan or the next political cycle that we're all rolling our eyes at, or whatever that looks like for you, maybe it's your workplace where everyone cusses like a sailor and, and you're one of the 25 in the Generation Z that has a biblical worldview, you are one of those pillars and pillars hold things up. I, I had this analogy, maybe it was from Clint Wagerman in my mind, but I was thinking of, just this big ogre of a man holding up this, sorry, Clint, this, this tarp. There he is. He's from the front row. Oh, my gosh, he's in the back. But uh, 
But, he, but he's holding this thing up, and I thought to myself, you know, this, this is our role. This is why it hurts so bad. Number one, the shoulder workouts are brutal. But, but number two, what happens when you, when you hold things up, when you're exposed, right? And when, you, when you're holding this thing up and the weight of this, and although Jesus is really in your place helping you hold this all together, but when you're taking on that leadership role, when you're the pillar of your home, when you're the pillar as a husband, when you're the pillar as a father, as a mother, whatever that looks like in your context, when you are holding things up, everything's exposed, and people, if they want to, can just be nasty, and they can come around, and when you're all your vital organs, not to be too graphic, but when all your vital organs are exposed, man, you're in a vulnerable place to get it, aren't you? I mean, you can get shanked. If someone could just come by, you are completely vulnerable when you're a pillar. But Jesus says, I've got you. I've got my church. Hold this thing up, and in a short period of time, you're gonna be a pillar for eternity, but in a short period of time, I'm coming back for my bride. Jesus is a jealous groom, and he's looking for a faithful bride that loves him, that serves him, that obeys him, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for the hope that we have in you this Memorial Day weekend. As we leave this space, help us to remember what it looks like to be a pillar what it looks like to love you and serve you and obey you and to be a faithful church, to be a faithful bride, no matter the cost. I would just ask, Lord, that at this church, that this, would be, this movement would be an absolute catalyst to reach a lost and dying world around us. That maybe there's some people sitting in this first service who have kind of taken a back seat and said, you know, I used to do this whole serving thing. I used to be you know, very involved in new life, but for whatever reason, maybe it was COVID, maybe something else was going on in my life, I've kind of taken a back seat, but I've come to realize in my own heart that you've called me to so much more than that. You've called me to be faithful to your church, to be an absolute pillar in this community, to reach people with the gospel, to be a pillar in my home, to be a pillar to my wife and my children. You have called me and separated me into something different. Jesus, have your way at New Life. I pray that people would rise up and follow you and love you and serve you. And I pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen.